0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Who owns the past? It's a question at the heart of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA. It was enacted in the 90s, and it's a question that Chip Caldwell asks himself. As senior curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, it's his job to both protect and return the items he oversees. Napra requires museums to give back objects and remains of Native Americans they've collected, oftentimes without consent, when tribes come for them. Caldwell's new book, Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, tells his personal account of working with the law and the Native people it impacts. Chip, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Since your start at the museum in 2007, you've returned almost all of the Native American remains in your collection. But it's been a long road to get to this point for tribal rights groups and the scientific community. You say, quote, your fantasies of anthropology's innocence was shattered when you heard the real end to the
1: life of Ishii. Ishii was a Yana Indian. Can you tell us about him? Sure. Uh, So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona and was surrounded by Native American history. And I was totally fascinated by it. And I came to even have a kind of almost a romantic view of Native Americans mm. and the loss of Native American cultures really impacted me as a young child even. And I'd read this story of Ishi, uh, a a member of the Yana Indian tribe in California. And in 1911, he wandered out of the forest. He was literally the last of his tribe. Hmm. And he lived just for five more years, and he died in 1916. And as a child, I remember even literally crying uh, at hearing this story. Hmm. Um, But Later, when I became an anthropologist, I learned the true ending to Ishii's tragic life. And what happened was he'd he'd begged for his body to just be buried, to be respectfully returned to the earth. And instead, anthropologists performed a quote-unquote autopsy on him when he died. And they even removed his brain and shipped it to the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. And that is just one set of remains of literally thousands of Native Americans that have ended up in museums in the United States and even around the world. And your book tells the stories of four objects
0: the Denver Museum collected and then returned to tribes, known as repatriation. Uh, One of those is is a human scalp from a Sand Creek massacre victim. In 1864, a group of cavalrymen attacked a peaceful village of Cheyenne and Arapaho in southeastern Colorado, brutally murdering upwards of 200 people. Tell us,
1: though, what happened after that massacre. So... After those tragic murders, these soldiers basically plundered that encampment, and they took all kinds of things from clothing to blankets to weapons, but they also brutalized the victims. They literally took body parts from them, including scalps. They brought all of that back to Denver, and some of those items and human remains ended up in museum collections, including one scalp supposedly taken from an Arapaho chief, and it was curated at the Denver Museum for decades until finally we were able to return it. How how did it get to the museum? Was, it, was the museum going out and buying these things? How did that happen? You know, museums get their collections through all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the scalp was donated. It uh, came through sort of a long line of collectors where this literal piece of a human was transformed into a commodity. It was bought and sold by different collectors. And then it was turned into kind of a historical artifact. And along the way, the the scalp, I think, lost its humanity. And by returning it, we were finally able to return that sense of dignity and respect that that murder victim deserved.
0: What did it take for the Cheyenne and Arapaho to get this one item
1: back? Because this was before the NAGPRA, Correct. Right. So the, uh, the museum got the scalp in 1968. And uh, really, tribes and uh, descendants weren't able to get human remains or sacred objects from museums until this federal law came along, this Why? 1990 federal law. You know, museums cherish the things that we hold. Uh, we hold things in the public trust, in the public trust, and we believe that these items can serve as evidence of humanity's stories. They can serve as science, and so for a long time, that was sort of the ethos and belief system of museum curators. They really weren't that focused on trying to understand the perspectives of Native communities. And this was happening at other museums
0: in Denver as well. The Denver Art Museum had a war god in their collection. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what a war god is and and kind of how that impacted this movement to kind of start uh, looking at how these, these artifacts could be given
1: back? Yeah, Denver has played a role in this global controversy. I mean, this is happening literally all over the world for decades. And Denver played a key point in this history when in 1978, the Zuni tribe in New Mexico claimed what's called an Ahayuda, or war god, that was in the art museum's collections. And a war god is a carving uh, made from wood. It's about two or three feet high, kind of vaguely in, has a semblance of a human. And every year, Zuni traditionalists carve a new war god. They believe that these are sacred living beings. They believe this piece of wood literally lives, and it serves to protect the Zuni people, to keep them well, and even ensures that the universe itself stays in balance. And so the art museum, though, had had come to collect this as an art piece. They saw it largely as a kind of aesthetic outgrowth of sort of the modern art movement, Picasso and Paul Clay, and, and other modern artists. And the Zunis, even though it was now in a museum, still believed it had this sacred power and they wanted it back. And so in 1979, the Denver Art Museum did return the war god. And this really ushered in a whole new period of museums finally returning sacred objects to tribes. We're speaking with Chip Caldwell. He's senior curator at the Denver Museum of
0: Nature and Science. His new book is called Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits. It tells the story of NAGPRA. That's the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, how it came to be and how the museum has worked with the law. In your book, you say, quote, academics collectively saw repatriation as the triumph of religion over science. The repatriation debate was just the creationism evolution debate veiled in buckskin. That's what, what, what was written there. Some even displayed bumper stickers that said archaeology is not a crime. Why were they feeling this way? Was it because giving those war gods
1: back set a kind of precedent that they maybe had concerns with? Curators uh, saw themselves as the defenders of culture, and you know you can imagine yourself as a librarian whose job it is to take care of all of these books, and giving them back is simply not in your job description. You know, it was almost like being a historian and seeing evidence just burnt, be burned up and and gone before your eyes, and so there was this deep passion that curators had, that they felt that it was their job to protect what it is that was in their collections. And so they were very much afraid that if they gave even just a few things back, that would open up the floodgates to having to give everything back. Now, was there an understanding that
0: this these objects may have been taken in a way that was not um, appropriate? You know,
1: I... I think there was the struggle to come to understand that. Um, there was sort of a, a viewpoint, you know, for talking about 50 years ago, 100 years ago, where science triumphed all, you know, museums. Were more important than almost anything else in society. And so a lot of curators felt justified in taking whatever it is that they saw as evidence of humanity's story and keeping it for all of us in the public trust. Native Americans, of course, dramatically disagreed.
0: Now, this act becomes law in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, It was not just an adjustment for museums, but it was also apparently an adjustment for tribes and Native Americans. You talk about how some tribes didn't know how to bury the remains that they got back. There was never a ceremony for that. Mm -hmm. And some tribes have a great fear of the dead because touching the bones can lead to disease and death. That's their belief. Um, Or they'd get a object back Mm -hmm. and they're like, well, we just don't have a place for it. Can you please hold on to this for safekeeping? How have Native Americans come to terms with NAGPRA? Is there a feeling of responsibility to get these sacred items back, even though there may not be a way to
1: um, to, to rebury them or, or keep them safe? Well, it's part of the reason that the floodgates haven't been opened. A lot of Native American communities aren't exactly sure how to handle these sacred objects and ancestral remains. And it's important to remember the scale here. You know, in 1990, when this federal law was passed, we're talking about more than 200,000 skeletons held in just U.S. museums. And so tribes suddenly had this huge opportunity to have their ancestors returned, but also this huge burden. Because how is it you go about rebearing thousands of your own ancestors? And a lot of tribes have burial ceremonies they know how to treat their dead but they don't know how to rebury their ancestors and if sometimes there was never any idea that they would be dug up and taken that's right it was beyond even conception in a lot of native traditions and so a lot of traditionalists were worried about sort of wrecking havoc on their community spiritually if they reburied ancestors without the appropriate rituals to accompany them.
0: Now, what about um, objects and,
1: and remains of tribes that no longer exist? How did you deal with that? Mm-hmm. So the law, this 1990 federal law, NAGPRA, is really predicated on the idea of cultural affiliation, that there is a connection between ancient peoples and the claimants, the tribes today, that want those items or human remains returned. And so one of the biggest puzzles under this law is what to do with tribes that seem to be extinct, uh, that really don't have clear ancestors today. And so in the book, I write about one of the biggest struggles we had to return human remains from a tribe in Florida called the Calusa. And supposedly, this tribe went away in the aftermath of Spanish colonialism. But there's a tribe, the Miccosukee, who claim that they are, in fact, ancestors. And so we had to kind of work through these claims to figure out what is appropriate, what is ethical, uh, what are what are the wishes of the tribes today, and to try to imagine what would have been the wishes of the Calusa.
0: Now, I, I read in the book that at first you told them you could not give those remains back, but then the laws changed. And you could. How did that feel
1: to tell this tribe? I'm sorry, you you can't have these remains. Yeah, I I talk about it in the book because it was. About, I think it was my third day on the job, and literally, I had to call up this tribe and tell them that we couldn't return the remains, which they believed were their ancestors. And for me, this was a horrible moment because I'd come to the museum, to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in the hope that I could find common ground between museums and tribes. And so, you know, just within my first week to have to essentially reject a claim of a tribe just felt horrible.
0: And and when the laws changed around unaffiliated remains in 2010, uh, the Denver Museum supported uh, the regulations. You say from what you can find, no other museum wrote in support of of the regulation. Was this a big shift for not just your museum,
1: but museums around the country? So before 2010, museums basically couldn't return any skeletons that didn't have cultural affiliation, that didn't have a living tribe that could demonstrate a connection. Like a lineage. A lineage, Mm -hmm. yeah, essentially a kind of genealogy uh, based on different kinds of evidence. And so uh, a lot of museums were stuck. And we're talking about some museums have 90% of their human remains collections were unaffiliated. They couldn't do anything. They just had to, to hold on to them for an unknown future. And in 2010, finally, the law was essentially amended so that museums could begin to return these unaffiliated remains. And so it was controversial, though, because some tribes and museums insisted that human remains should only go back to those that could definitively demonstrate this connection or affiliation. However, we think at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, the sort of ethical line in the sand is about informed consent. Do we have the consent of the individual or community from where they came? And if we don't, then we have a moral obligation to try to do something with them, to try to return them in some way to some community.
0: Now, is Denver one of the few museums, or is that actually spreading out across the country now?
1: That idea? I think we're, you know, there's actually quite a strong communi- museum community here in Denver. So, the University of Colorado uh, Museum of Natural History, the University of Denver and History Colorado and our museum have really all worked um, kind of in the same mode, which is that we really embrace the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. You have to follow, you know, the basics of the law itself. But we really do see, I think, collectively, we see the law as a human rights law. And it's really about not just honoring Native America's past, but also trying to ensure that they have dignity in the present and that, they, that their cultures can survive long into the future. We're speaking with Chip Caldwell. He's senior curator at the
0: Denver Museum of Nature and Science. His new book is called Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits. It tells the story of four items the museum has returned to Native Americans and the conflict that exists around NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, the law that requires these items to be returned some said NAGPRA, as a law, lacked real teeth. That's to say actually getting back an item was not as easy as intended. Uh, The Denver Museum at first was reluctant to return items, as were many other museums, as we've we've said. And it took a lot longer to get claims sorted out than it was supposed to. In your book, you say a lot of times tribal members actually had to come to Denver to, quote, shed tears over their heritage and to beg for the return of what they believed was already rightly theirs. But that's
1: changed, Right. Well, yes and no. (laughs) So, you know, basically, a lot of things are going back. About 50,000 skeletons have been returned now, as well as about 10, more than 10,000, 15,000 sacred objects. From Colorado? No, from across the United States. Um, But there's still more than 100,000 skeletons that are in museums 30 years almost after this law was passed and literally thousands and thousands of sacred objects. Part of the reason is it takes a long time. You know, it's a legal process and we have to be very deliberate. But museums sometimes take much longer than they should. So for example, with my museum, I mentioned earlier the scalp from the horrific uh, events at Sand Creek in 1864 that the museum held. And it should have been returned within 90 days of when it was first claimed. Mm -hmm. Instead, it took more than 2,200 days for it to be returned. So museums have at times, not been as careful and as speedy and as expedient as they need to be under the law. And so we're still trying to figure out essentially how to make this process very careful, but also ensure that it moves swiftly um, so that tribes can get, get, get back what
0: they need. And there seems to be this relationship here between museums and Native Americans, including letting them visit the museum's collection storeroom to perform rituals because there are still artifacts at, at the museum. At the end of your book, you talk about how you hurry a Visiting group past exhibit cases on Native Americans because you say at times you maybe feel embarrassed by them since they've changed very little since 1978. Why do you
1: feel embarrassed as a curator of the museum? Well, uh, you know, to put that in context, what I was referring to was that you know, we have exhibits that were finished in 1978 and has been quite a while, um, but also the exhibits show some Native peoples kind of frozen in the past. Whereas my vision for museums is to talk about the past, but also very much about living Native cultures. I want it to be a place where it's a kind of mediating space where we can talk about the past, but also about the future of Native America. And so the exhibits that we have, um, you know, they're beautiful and, and well put together, but they really don't capture the spirit of who Native peoples are today and what they need to survive into the future.
0: But, but isn't there a, a need to have that Frozen in the past history, where where you can go and say this is how it was. So I don't I don't understand frozen in the past. What's the...
1: yeah? So what I'm referring to is you know Native Americans were long perceived to be only in the past. You there's this idea of sort of Native peoples going extinct or dying out. But today there's more than five million Native Americans, more than fifty thousand in the state. You know here in Colorado. And they are living people with living needs, living traditions, living beliefs. And museums can be a part of that. They can honor and cherish Native peoples, not just as people from the past, but as people as part of our community today.
0: And the places where objects once were that have since been given back, like the the war gods, there's now an empty space. And a sign that reads, this object has been repatriated. Uh, You say you're leaving those spaces open on purpose. Why is that?
1: Yeah, you know, because I want us to really embrace our history and confront it. I think museums, we've come a long way, and we need to move towards a better understanding of what the institution is and what we can be into the future. And so rather than kind of hiding the fact that maybe the museum ended up with some things that it shouldn't have, I think it's better to acknowledge it for us to engage with the public in a dialogue about how we should rebuild our relationships with the communities that matter so much to us. What else do you wish visitors knew or considered when they see these objects or when they see the sign? You know, I I think museums do a really good job of putting things up in a way that tells the museum's story. And I think a lot of museum visitors will come to a place like ours and not really ask themselves, where did this item really come from? Are there other people that cherish it just as much as the museum? Who really owns it? Who can control it? And so I think one thing that we can do better is really... Uh, begin to think about things, not just as isolated objects the behind static. glass, static, yeah. exactly, but I want to, I want people to see them as dynamic, as living, and as things that can have multiple values and viewpoints attached to them.
0: Is that a, a conversation Denver's having with other museums around the country, or, or is it simply something that's just happening here in Colorado?
1: I think Colorado's at the heart of it. And we're doing a lot to engage in this dialogue and promote it nationally and even internationally. Um, But I think there is something really special going on within our own community because we're thinking about how do we really confront these histories? How do we really uh, mend the wounds of the past? And how do we see NAGPRA, this 19 federal law, not as something that's retributive or you know, punishing, but it's really about a kind of restorative justice. It's really trying to heal the breaches of the past so that we can all have a better future.
0: Thanks so much for being here. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Chip Caldwell is the senior curator of anthropology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Caldwell's new book, Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, tells his personal account of working with NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. You can read an excerpt of his book at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Boulder and Denver have the biggest achievement gaps among Colorado's largest school districts. That means the differences in test scores between ethnic groups and between rich and poor students are very wide. In fact, Denver's gap is one of the widest in the country. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine spoke with Mike Lamp about the story behind those numbers.
2: So give us a sense of these achievement gaps and where the numbers come from.
3: This is all based on test results just released from last year. And to give you an idea, 70% of Denver's white fourth graders are reading and writing at or above grade level. So 70%. That's pretty good. Yeah. That 70% compares to just 28% for black students. And Hispanic students, 27% doing work at grade level. So let's go to an older grade, seventh grade math. The gap between those who live in poverty and those who don't, it's 44 percentage points. Let's look at the category of race for those same seventh graders in math. The gap between Hispanics and whites is 50 percentage points.
2: So there's a lot of disparity. And before we get to exactly what's behind these achievement gaps, how about some perspective on students of color in Denver? You talked recently with Denver Superintendent Tom Bosberg.
3: Yes. He says despite the gaps, Denver students are improving.
2: They've made more progress than students of color anywhere else in the state. If you looked a decade ago, they trailed state averages by 12, 14 points. Now they've caught up with the rest of the state. They've completely eliminated that gap with students of color elsewhere and in some
3: cases are doing better.
2: So students in Denver are improving. Why is there still this disparity, these
3: uh, achievement gaps? Well, it's because while students of color are improving... All kids in the district are getting better, and white students happen to be improving at a faster rate. In fact, faster than white students anywhere in the state.
2: But something that is kind of curious is that the district has uh, some pretty extensive efforts to help poor students and students of color improve academically.
3: Yeah, that list is really long. So in Denver, for example, kids with greater needs, they get significantly more money all 4-year-olds in Denver can attend full-day preschool there's a math tutoring program there's money plowed into literacy training and support and voters just approved money for social and emotional supports for low-income children
2: so there are a lot of uh, efforts and programs to help kids who are maybe kind of hanging back and uh, but at the same time white students and more affluent students are also benefiting from what the district is doing
3: yes in fact 10 years ago white families were fleeing to the suburbs now there's the feeling and stats really bear this out, that they're doing better in Denver schools than anywhere in Colorado.
2: How about just the sheer number of kids that are living in poverty in Denver? How does that uh, affect the city's uh, achievement gaps.
3: That's a good point. About two-thirds of kids in Denver are low-income. Colorado Springs' poverty rate is a bit lower, but its wealthier kids aren't doing as well, so their gap isn't as big. And here, Superintendent Bosberg explains the research that shows when you have these high concentrations of poor kids in one school, academic gains are harder to get.
2: When kids get to go to schools that are more integrated socioeconomically, all kids do better low-income kids and higher-income kids. And it's one of the main forces behind the Strengthening Neighborhoods initiative, which is looking at what are the ways that we can drive greater integration in our schools.
3: So things like school design and new enrollment zones to drive integration. He hopes these work against Denver's starkly segregated housing patterns.
2: Now, something about these achievement gaps in Denver is that they are measurable. We can see what the numbers look like. But I understand it's harder to measure achievement
3: gaps in uh, most of the state. What happened? There are new state rules that suppress a huge amount of data. State officials say they're doing it to protect student privacy. The new rules mean you can't compare how most districts or schools are doing with specific student groups. Like we don't know anymore how black students are doing in Boulder, for example. Van Schools is with the Education Watchdog Group A Plus Colorado. He says three years ago, Colorado was a leader in data transparency. Which allowed
0: families to be able to pick and choose schools that best met their needs. And so now we're in a position where families are flying blind in terms of understanding where the best place for their English language learner or where the best place for their Latina to go to school or where the best place for their white student to go to school.
2: Well, how much data then is being kept from public view?
3: One analysis shows it's likely between 70 and 95 percent of data is being hidden. So that includes how poor kids in the state are doing, how students of color are doing, and other groups.
2: Jenny Brundine is CPR's education reporter. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
0: That was education reporter Jenny Brundine speaking with CPR's Mike Lamp. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.